0: Welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart, where we strive to keep you healthy and pain-free. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today we're going to talk about uh, PT education, Um, but not your formal PT education, not your DPT, not the the seven years of schooling. We're going to be talking about the education that needs to happen after you graduate. So you have traditional continuing education. You have fellowships. You have residencies. There's webinars. There's online courses. There's uh, the the big uh, combined sections meeting, which just which just took place. There's uh, a lot of ways for you to keep up and and get your clinical education units and and improve your your skills and your mastery of your craft and differential diagnosis and all that kind of stuff. but uh, as everyone knows, healthcare is changing. So, what do the continuing the people behind all of this continuing education have to do to keep up with the changes? in healthcare and the changes over the last couple of years. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So it's really excited to have uh, these two guys on with me. Um, We have Dr. Francois Krasinski and Dr. Bob Duval, and they are... Uh, going, I'm going to have them come on and kind of give a little, they'll introduce themselves, tell a little bit about themselves. Um, so Francois, I'll have you go go ahead and kind of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Thanks, Karen. Uh, I was very excited about the opportunity to uh, talk uh, about postgraduate education. It's something that I'm not sure if I thought of myself getting into this when I graduated from physical therapy school. I've been a practicing physical therapist for just about 10 years now. uh, And my clinical interests uh, were in outpatient uh, orthopedics, spine, manual therapy, and sports. Uh, Naturally, I went down the uh, board certification route early after graduating. PT school in orthopedics, and I was still left with wanting to understand more um, and to provide the best I could for my patients. So it seemed uh, as a natural uh, progression to look for quality postgraduate education. However, during the 2006, you know, this was 2005, 2006, Uh, residency programs were not as popular uh, as they are now. Uh, So after my board certification in orthopedics, I uh, seeked out fellowship training, uh, but knew that I had to take a lot of continuing education courses before I would really be able to take as much as I needed out of that. Uh, So I started uh, fellowship training um, with Dr. Duval in, I want to say it was 2011 2010 or 2011, and my first course uh, was prior to then, and it was on medical screening, and another course was on direct access. And it really opened up my eyes to how this type of education can really be impactful for the clinic. And uh, as a practicing clinician, I saw the need to be able to, to get meaningful Uh, changes for patients because they tell their friends and families about you and, you know, referral sources and you you can have a a good name for yourself. So, uh, on a personal note, I I knew that I had to improve my skill set and I found that, uh, with the type of training that I got. Currently, I found myself, uh, in this role after fellowship, uh, to be able to put together, um, these types of educational uh, models for other people. And I feel uh, very blessed to have an opportunity to provide those opportunities for others uh, to make those meaningful changes, especially in a time when uh, we're seeing Medicare come out just uh, you know a month ago, just last month, with their uh, issued statement of an official timeline on when reimbursement uh, is going to be based more on the outcome uh, rather than uh, just units, just just billing your units. So I'm happy to be on. Thank you for for inviting uh, me, and I'll I'll turn it over to Dr. Duval to uh, introduce himself.
2: Hi, Karen. Bob Duval here. Again, excited about the opportunity to tell about my experiences with post-professional clinical education. Obviously, it's when we graduate, do we put a focus on the patient-centered care we want to deliver? And now clinical education becomes the primary focus of the practitioner. While it might have a didactic component, it's got to have an impact on resulting in the clinical utility, clinical effectiveness, and the outcomes that we achieve for the patients we work with. So there is this extra focus on the clinical outcome aspect of post-professional education. Uh, One could argue that looking over the years of my career, there's been very little change in the clinical education model the way the entry-level practitioner has been developed. And obviously, there's a need for improvement as we look at raising the bar, as Dr. Brzezinski alluded to with the Health and Human Services releasing a dateline. We're now, for the first time in my career, shifting our focus toward a payment model that's going to be based on achieving outcomes. And so post-professional education becomes part of this professional development portfolio that every physical therapist will find essential to their ability to remain relevant in the clinic, to not become a liability, but a fruitful producer of someone, a practitioner who can impact the patient with meaningful, relevant, functional outcomes that result in quality of life. So we've got to gear educational products to that standard now. And we've done some unique things, and there's some unique variables that we believe are contributory to that exact purpose in this post-professional model, i.e. it is truly a lifelong learner that we're dealing with now because of this payment model shift. And now both of
0: you have sort of alluded to um – the changes in the past couple of years and, and mainly in Medicare now. So, you know, you both have many years under your belt, as, as do I as a physical therapist. So what have been the most um, impactful changes that you have seen over the past couple of years that have really changed the way that postgraduate education needs to actually needs to be presented. Um, and so I'll, I'll throw it out to either one of you. I don't know if if uh, Bob, if you want to take this first or, you know, it's, it's up to you guys.
2: You know, I'd love to, you know, I can reflect back on my years of experience To where the main criterion was meeting the state required continuing education units that one had to have. And there was debate about this. Is this continuing ed? Is it continued competency? What are we dealing with? And how many hours are essential? And do we have any kind of studies to show that it really does improve care? And I don't think we've been able to really come to a full consensus as to what is best for patient care. So in the past, one had a certain number of hours they had to meet. We were all taught in entry level to be a lifelong learner. However, obviously, life gets in the way once we graduate. And all of a sudden, maintaining this minimal level of competence became important. And this was further uh, facilitated by this concept of being paid on units. One could argue the more units you would do, the more you'd make. And one could speculate that the worse therapist you were, the more units you could do versus someone who was highly effective and would do fewer units would make less money in that model. So it's thrilling to me for the first time in my entire career, I can look at a group of therapists and let them know that it significantly matters now your professional development plan that you have to structure lifelong learning that will be relevant and evidence-based and result in measurable outcomes, or you'll possibly become a liability in this model that is transparent. Yes, you'll have a license number that's trackable. We'll be able to see what your outcome efficiency is, what your utility levels are, and what your value is to a practice and to a community with your social responsibility to achieve these measurable changes in function that are directly linked to quality of life. And this is all coming together at one time where it's no regular consumer we're dealing with. It's primarily the baby boomer, who over the next 15, 20 years, we're gonna be focused on taking care of, who's this informed consumer that wants it, they want it now, they're going to know a lot about making the decision And they'll be able to discern who is and who is not capable of making relevant functional outcomes and quality of life changes for them. So now, post-professional educational products have got to be geared for this consumer at this payment-type system that we're adopting.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I think that's amazing how you said, you know, the a therapist that's maybe not very good can, can get a lot of units in because maybe they're doing tons of modalities and billing for that, which, you know, so, so all of a sudden, this therapist looks so productive. Um, sorry, you people can't see it, but I was just air quoting that, quote-unquote, productive, um, because they're billing so many units. But in fact, the outcomes from the patients... Are, may not be where they need to be. So I think that's a great, um, that was a great observation. I'm really glad you said that. Um, Francois, what's, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well said. Um, I just wanted to add to what Dr. Duval said um, with the idea that, going to your original question about the, the changes, anyone that does uh, direct access type of physical therapy really has to take a different look at providing physical therapy care. There is a different level of uh, uh, responsibility, a uh, different level of critical thinking. Now, for the first time, you're, you're taking on the role as being the entry point for a patient to come to you rather than a primary care or an orthopedic surgeon. And how you manage that case as a physical therapist really requires you as the physical therapist to have your own identity of who you are as a clinician during a time when we transition, at least with my observation, from a master's to a doctorate. And what does that mean? Here we are in transition and those early adapters, I watched this TED or listened to those TED talks and it was Simon Sinak uh, that I would reference on diffusion of innovation. It's the early adapters are the ones who formed their physical therapy doctoral identity and said, I do know what I have. I have a unique body of knowledge. In fact, I can even charge you $100 a visit or $150 for an initial evaluation and you might leave wanting to pay me more because you saw the value of what I provided as a clinician versus why would a consumer want to come and see you if they were forced to see you by a referral source or better yet the interventions that you provide do not translate to meaningful outcomes that impact their lives and change the way they move and interact with their world
0: yeah that's that's great and you know i i love and i'm i'm going to definitely use this that quote of you know, thinking about being a direct access physical therapist, all fifty states have some form of direct access at this point. Eighteen having unrestricted direct access, um, but I think it's so important. You know, we—I just did a talk on this at CSM. We just did a talk. Myself, Anne Wendell, and uh, Kyle Ridgeway did a talk on direct access, and we spoke about you know practicing at the top of your license and. And I think everything you said certainly hits upon that, but I want to just reiterate for the listeners what I thought was the most impactful thing you said was a patient coming to you because they're forced to come to you versus a patient choosing to see you first because of the results and because of the outcomes you can provide for that patient. And that is is definitely speaks to practicing at the top of your license. And I think what a great distinction because now patients can choose. They are informed consumers, like Dr. Duval said, and very informed consumers. So they can choose to go to you because your outcomes are great versus being forced to. We've all had those patients come in and say, well, I don't know why I'm here. The doctor told me I had to come, so here I am. You know, And, and I think when patients choose to go and see you, If they believe in you, we all know that that belief that that things are going to help, I think it makes your job as the therapist maybe a little bit, a little bit easier, you know, Uh, because that belief that it's going to, the belief that it's going to help makes a big difference. So go ahead.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to mention when I did my fellowship training with Dr. Duval in Atlanta, um, I, I was, so inspired, because um, he his caseload for direct access patients hovers around eighty to ninety percent, and it's not uncommon for him to send patients to you know the emergency room for something or to go to their primary care. Um, it's very important for a physical therapist to know what it is that they know and are able to treat and what they don't know to become a a referral source so that we're viewed as a equal uh, in the medical community. Dr. DuVal?
2: Yes, you bring out some great points Uh, with direct access. Obviously the clinical competencies that are necessary Are somewhat different than the entry level competencies we see being produced. While we do have 50 states with some degree of direct access, we got to look at our clinical education models and recognize what's the frequency with which we provide mentored direct access learning experiences. So I would argue anecdotally, we're probably with 190,000. Plus, physical therapists licensed in the United States, we're having probably less than 0.1% of all public civilian clients being patients being seen via direct access. So, while we have it, it's not happening. And I believe it's failure of our clinical education model post professionally to provide mentored opportunities that can take the entry level practitioner into a structured learning environment and create learning experiences that include all the skills necessary for this topping at practicing at the top of your license a couple key points that would like to reiterate and that is when the patient is referred a lot of water has already gone under the bridge you've been appropriated by some authority figure usually an md to go see physical therapy someone walking in direct access, you've not been appropriated. And the front desk competencies all the way to the expectation of this patient are highly necessary to be skillfully provided to meet these affective needs first to the patient. Uh, The tangible that is delivered in the initial experience visit with a direct access physical therapist is the diagnosis. And that diagnosis needs to be a diagnosis that is relevant to development of a physical therapy plan of care. It is not regurgitation of an ICD-9 pathoanatomic diagnosis that many physical therapists still bank on. So the post-professional education has got to prepare a diagnostician that is relevant and pertinent to creating hypotheses that the uh, direct access patient will receive that'll make sense to them and make rational uh, relevance to their quality of life and to their functional needs. And usually it's at the impairment level that we make these diagnoses. So that's the first step, starting from ground zero and uh, creating the tangible of that first visit to be an actual diagnosis for physical therapy. Uh, secondly, the patient would then receive the intervention that would, would be geared obviously to this diagnosis and it would be obviously evidence-based intervention in that uh, sequence. So a variety of things have got to occur and i allude to the study that I published my doctoral dissertation in 2004 in JOSPD that looked at what are the competencies we need If we truly are going to do direct access, if we're going to function as a primary contact practitioner, are the skill sets different? And of course, it alludes to this critical thinking, clinical reasoning element that perhaps arguably starts with the formulation or the synthesis of the collected data to create this diagnostic hypothesis. And that is where most programs lack. We go way beyond the application of mere evidence. Yes, we could plug in a prediction rule that we memorized or learned. What we're eager to do is prepare a practitioner that is able to critically think, synthesize all the literature, and consider the entire patient. Uh, Be an intuitive, qualitative practitioner who's introspective, who's mentorship, reflects these introspective properties to where there's cognitive and metacognitive learning experiences geared right in the post-professional experience that produces this diagnostician this critical thinker that is ready for direct access that exceeds the expectations actually of the of the patient who comes to us so our post-professional learning is geared for this evolving role that is now legally appropriate in 50 states that literally isn't happening. So we feel there's a moral duty an obligation to go way beyond just the translation of mere evidence into practice, but to actually develop practitioners who are these critical, high-level thinkers, intuitive, qualitative, who can take care of patients from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very well said. And Francois, you wanted to add to that?
1: Yeah, I just, you know, I just wanted to reflect on an observation of mine, Um, you know, when we are able to see that direct access is now able to be exercised to some degree in 50 states. It's just interesting to me when dry needling became uh, of interest that because it's rooted as a technique and learning the competency of that technique it's it's interesting to me that uh, so quickly, all right, in such a short amount of time, that physical therapy um, education for dry needling uh, grew like a wildfire, and that direct access and the skill sets that Dr. Duval mentioned really have not, and and I think that the reason is exactly today why we're taking a look at conversations like this because it will impact the way we get paid on the way we think and it's really important that we don't view direct access type of training and the way to exercise that as as a mere technique it's a it's a thought process that needs mentorship and and training pr- the ability to practice and be challenged on why you thought the way you did in, in a relaxed, comfortable setting where your mentor is there to foster and develop your, your thinking ability um, versus uh, the mere application of uh, some type of procedure to just get paid immediately based on that procedure. And it's unfortunate because the model is built around that but what is best for the patient, and what is best for healthcare, is being a to be a player and to send that patient to where they need to be, and if they belong to you, to give them the right type of treatment at the right time. Just, just an observation.
0: And and I think it's it's a very valid one, and it kind of goes back. It, what what I sort of got out of what both of you are saying, and and especially that is, you know when when new graduates come out of school, they just kind of want to learn, 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 technique, 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 technique. So, and and I hate to use this terminology, but to sort of put more quote unquote tools into the toolbox. And then they learn these techniques. And what's the first thing that happens? They go and they use all these techniques with all their patients the next couple of weeks, regardless of whether did the patient really need it or not. So perhaps the most important tool in the toolbox should be critical thinking, differential diagnosis, and, and really taking these, wh- what you guys were saying, these sort of concepts of are we ready from, from a, a critical thinking standpoint for these new graduates and even older graduates for that matter? to enter into a direct access setting where, where your payments are now going to be dependent upon outcomes versus, like you said, just using a bunch of different techniques and billing for it, and, and are these techniques really producing the outcomes that are going to get us paid in the future? I don't know the answer to that question, um, but I, I, it seems to me like the most important tool is being a critical thinker and... And having uh, some skepticism about some of some of these these new techniques coming out, Dr. Duvall, go ahead.
2: You know, when we look at the word or term "physical therapy," it connotates intervention. It does not connotate diagnosis, critical thinking, and historically, the role of the physician has been that of the data collector, the synthesizer, and the formulator of diagnostic hypotheses. But now that we have a unique body of knowledge in this macrobiological science, biomechanics, kinesiology, relevant to human movement, and how we can impact society from a movement perspective, the science is well there, we need this critical thinker who can synthesize this macrobiological data and formulate unique hypotheses that are relevant to quality of life and function. And we can no longer be in the traditional model that we have evolved really from. And the term physical therapy connotates this action of intervention and it leaves behind the actual necessity and role of this diagnostician. So while I'm sure i not proposing we're gonna change the name of the profession, we just have to realize though, that And we need to exercise every opportunity we can with advocacy, that we are diagnosticians, we are prognosticians, and also providers of skilled intervention.
0: And, you know, I, that brings me to a conversation I had the other day with, with someone who said they were having knee surgery. And they said, well, you know, I can, you know, go to physical, I can do physical therapy with you. Um, once a week, and then she said, "But I can also do physical therapy with my yoga instructor, because she'll do the physical therapy with me, as if the physical therapy were just a set of exercises versus what you just said, the physical therapy is it's evaluation, it's reevaluation. It's looking at, in my opinion, I think, looking at things much deeper than a yoga instructor would. So doing the physical therapy is more than just the home exercise program you may give to your patient. And I heard that and just had to, took a deep breath and then explained why that's not the way it works. But, you know, to your point of, what is the term physical therapy? That's what a lot of people think. The term physical therapy is just the home exercise program that you give the patient, the exercises, the techniques, the dry needling, the ultrasound, all that kind of stuff. That's what people think is physical therapy. They don't think physical therapy is... a a highly trained physical therapist who's going to go in and be that diagnostician and, and be introspective and really evaluate and think on this patient for what is best to move them forward in their life.
2: You know, as we look at the elements of, let's say, autonomous practice, the quickest way for us to achieve autonomy is going to be to have a unique body of knowledge, which are our research has already generated, and then we can encapsulate the key components of that body of knowledge with diagnostic phraseology, diagnostic hypotheses that are unique to that body of knowledge that serve well to identify the impairments that lead to functional limitations to restore quality of life. So all of a sudden, the aspect of autonomy is related to that. At the same time, this autonomous nature of a unique body of knowledge beckons us as physical therapists to be more interdependent on medicine. Because of the unique autonomy we have, now there is more of a parallel interdependence that we have with the physician than a subordinated or ancillary role that we've traditionally had. So it is this autonomy that really sets us up for an awesome Interdependence on mainstream medicine. It shouldn't be autonomy that's perceived as taking us into the left field by ourselves. By no means do we advocate for that. It's that we merely have a unique body of knowledge that is our body of expertise that warrants why we even would argue we do direct access, why there is a DPT. Both questions are answered. Why do direct access? Why have a DPT? It's best reflected through this differential diagnosis of movement, of this unique body of knowledge. So to really actualize our profession, there is no way to do it through intervention alone. It must be through critical thinking, clinical reasoning, and it's best manifested through this diagnostic process and role. So post-professional education needs to truly maximize that. And we are able as physical therapists with post-professional mentoring models that we can use that will actually do this. And again, I reiterate that this also must happen to a certain degree in direct access settings. It can't be always actualized, where I would argue there could be fear of retribution to autonomously diagnose a patient with your unique body of knowledge, one that's been referred. Why are you re-diagnosing my patients with this foreign language? In that model, there's actually some form of built-in potential retribution. So again, another reason for a degree of autonomy that's necessary for us to actualize our fullest capabilities of being a uh, a contemporary modern physical
0: therapist. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: You know, I just wanted to bring up um, some points after hearing some of Dr. Duval's reflection. And it, and it kind of brought me to, you know, why the APTA did change its vision. And I, I view the, uh, the profession really at an interesting time to um, look at what was proposed as the, the guiding uh, principles uh, that the APTA proposed and one of those is identity you know there was there was identity quality value innovation uh, these are the guiding principles to take us to where we need to be as far as that vision goes and so when i when i want to bring up is identity and if we consider how the our profession really doesn't want to change i mean it, it will it will change because Society and uh, third-party payers and the system, the healthcare system at large, will require us to change. We won't change ourselves. We will we dig our heels. I'm talking as a group to change because uh, it, it's it's much easier to uh, to be complacent or status quo, um, you know, in a a this uh, this new identity and this role that is that is needed to fulfill in in society, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of brought to uh, a reflection that that I remember reading um, Eric Kruger's blog post on forward thinking PT, and, and he wrote a, a nice little little piece on um, hacking the PT education, and, and you know the, the gist of what he mentioned was to uh, really call out for a fresh perspective, uh, greater independence, uh, and, and to have thinkers in our profession. And that reminded me of uh, AOP in 2013 in Cincinnati when Jim Meadows stood up on the podium and he said, we need more theory. We need innovation, creativity. We need to redefine ourselves. And that really moved me uh, as a clinician. Uh, I, the first thing that I thought of was we need to rethink, adapt, and survive. This this is happening. This 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 is things are changing. And when we're having this conversation this evening about postgraduate education, we we are the the catalysts of change to assist in making this transition as least painful as possible to be impactful and for us to serve in the way that we're passionate and that brings meaning for us. Um, I I can, I can only share from, from my perspective.
0: And, you know, you mentioned the, the AOMT. So there is another question that I had, um, was what was the wake up call from Linda? So I didn't go to this conference. So let me just preface that. So I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about here. Um, so what was the wake up call from Linda Woodhouse at the AOMP conference last year? Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Well, to, for me, um, it, it was it was remarkable to have. Um, Dr. Linda Woodhouse, uh, who is a PhD PT from Canada, she holds the title of chair in musculoskeletal clinical research, and she's the director for the Bone and Joint Health Strategic uh, Clinical Network uh, in Alberta. Her job is to coordinate interdisciplinary teams so surgeons, uh, nurses, PTs, and so forth, and really um, bridge the clinic to research gap uh, to improve access, optimize outcomes in a healthcare model that is really in, in a hole in a major way. Everyone knows it, and you know we sit, you know, south of that border, and, and say, look upward and say, "Geez, stinks to be you guys." we're heading right in that direction. I mean, if you look at the statistics of how expensive healthcare uh, is, just it's grown exponentially just in 10 years. Um, if we were to extrapolate those statistics, I mean, at some point, there, there's going to be a bust. There's just no way. It can continue for another 10 years growing at the rate that it is. So the real wake-up call, at least for me, was to was to really see this uh, uh, this coordination uh, out of necessity. They didn't want to do this. Linda Woodhouse didn't step up to the plate because she wanted to. She had to. The bottom fell out, and she rolled up her sleeves and said, "All right, let's figure out some real solutions." And so, when they ran the statistics of where healthcare dollars are going. They found that $18 billion made up the Canadian healthcare um, uh, uh, pocketbook for one year. And 75% of that went to musculoskeletal. 75% of that. That to me blew my mind that if we combined cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and when we consider the most expensive. Uh, procedures in our country, it's going to fall into radiology, orthopedic surgery, anesthesiology, and cardiology. Those are the most expensive areas of medicine. And, and so, if you if you look at the overutilization of imaging, uh, are surgeries really that necessary? She ran statistics in in, the, in Canada to find out that really only tw- only around twenty percent. Of surgeries were required or needed, and it was it was even it was even less for uh, for spine surgery. So where are these patients going? They, they're on a wait list to see an expert for one point five to two years. What do you think happens to the to their joints and muscles and soft tissues for that weight, amount of wait time? To be told you don't need surgery. So, you know, we can learn from our neighbors up there uh, and, you know, what not to do. I think, you know, I, I heard it uh, as it was a, there was a quote from a, uh, uh, a stock analyst. He, he kind of defined uh, intelligence as learning from your own mistakes and wisdom learning from others. So, you know, I, I would like to say that, you know, we should learn from our own, but also from others you know, so that we could rise to our cha- our own challenges, our own country's challenges. So for me, that, that was a, a huge, huge wake-up call for us to reassess and, and be proactive rather than reactive as they unfortunately had to be.
0: Right. I mean, what a huge opportunity for physical therapists to, like, Dr. Duval said to sort of be at that same be on the same at the same playing field or on the same table as the physicians because we are the musculoskeletal experts. So what a huge opportunity for us to, like you said, be proactive and step up to the plate and say, This is what we can do. And plenty of studies have shown that when patients enter the healthcare system for musculoskeletal issues with the physical therapist, that costs are down, you know? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'll just add the overwhelming amount of literature that Dr. Linda Woodhouse presented. Uh, I, I almost ran out of ink. I started taking pictures of her presentation slides just because the amount of research she had to do, she had to go to the bean counter and say, advanced practice physical therapy gets the outcomes cheaper. And it, I mean, it's overwhelming. It it cannot be denied. I mean, we're talking a good eight to 10 studies Mm -hmm. that have been done to really look at physical therapists are the most qualified. They are the most uh, qualified to be able to provide um, uh, imaging uh, studies for um, prescribing medication injections, and they use it sparingly, only when it's needed. Because of that advanced training, they know when and how to use it with that critical thinking process. And so if that is a look, you know, into the future, you know, if that's the crystal ball, we should learn from that and, and draw on those examples rather than wait for us to, continue digging our heels saying we don't want to change we want to continue doing you know whatever techniques or you know quick ways that I can make more money we will be forced to change either we embrace it and be proactive or we will be forced to change and it, it may be a little more uncomfortable
0: right Dr. Duval, go ahead
2: Numerous very relevant points. The work of Woodhouse is very unique and valuable to us in that we are not able to generate similar research in the United States. The capitalistic market that we operate with our medical model creates tremendous fear of retribution to give up any turf, to give up any area of practice for fear of lessening the volume. When we shift to an outcome-based model of payment, when we shift to a performance-based model, more of a socialized model, that retribution goes away. Now, all of a sudden, the practitioners, be they physicians included, are working hard to match the patient with the most cost-effective, satisfaction-oriented, outcome-based practitioner there is. So now we're going to see advocacy interdisciplinary by physicians advocating in some of this Canadian model. In Great Britain, we see abundant research produced by MDs suggesting that the role of the PT should be expanded and the outcomes are actually superior, cost is less, and satisfaction is higher. So we have clear evidence to that, but none produced in the United States except one study back in the 70s in the military, a relatively socialized model, where two surgeons had no fear to say that physical therapists were best suited to take care of low back pain in the military model. And we know the rest of the story from that point on with primary care and direct access in the military model. But as we look to Canada, we can learn a lot because the fear of telling the truth is, um, is abated to where they can speak freely and look at what works best, and they're striving to do that with this model, and Woodhouse's work clearly shows this. I believe we'll be in a similar situation when we see changes in reimbursement. The evidence should be sufficient to make us make the moves and shifts today. However, historical and traditional culture uh, has, with a referral-based model, served us well. And there is risk involved to go out of that model. Uh, I received a phone call from the Ottawa Canada PT Association some 12 or 15 years ago asking me how to do print ads for direct access. They had heard that I had run some print ads educating consumers uh, that they could directly access a PT service. And I said, what's up? Why are you now asking me for this information. They said, well, the bottom fell out. And I said, what bottom? They said, our Medicare reimbursement has dropped down to $13 a visit. We have no fear to go directly to the consumer and say, you can come to us. And so they immediately started educating the consumer at grassroots with this unique idea of seeing and consulting a PT first. It's my adage and take from this that we in the states won't offer direct access widespread because of the comfort we experience in a referral-based model. While we might complain it has problems, it is sufficient and it does work. And there is risk, particularly from, of retribution from established referral sources, if we were to step out and do and offer direct access to the consumers at the grassroots. So we can learn a lot from Canada. I think it'll end up being payers that will advocate for us and mandate we do direct, not on our own recognizance like it should be, us seeing the light, fulfilling our social responsibility with this unique valuable body of knowledge to society, but instead it'll be payers saying, Before you, the MD, can offer or do an MRI, you've got to do six weeks of PT. Moving the PT to the front end by the payer, not on our own recognizance, would kind of be a shame. We're seeing that happen in Canada. That's probably when we'll do more direct access here. In the meantime, though, the post-professional educational model, which some programs have, uh, we are eager in offering that type programming now to where we fulfill that social responsibility by making this unique body of knowledge readily available and creating this practitioner who, again, is this critical thinker who has these intuitive, qualitative properties that go beyond the application of, of just strictly applying evidence to practice.
0: And, and that kind of leads into uh, my next question is how – you know, do you think that our definition of evidence-based practice, which we've mentioned a couple of times in physical therapy, um, does that need to be revised? Does it go beyond just um, RCTs and studies? So in the educational model that you guys have developed, how are you addressing that evidence-based practice? and, And does it go beyond just evidence
1: yeah the short answer is yes um i've put a lot of thought into this and i really took a took a step back to understand you know what exactly is evidence-based practice evidence-based medicine and you know it's it's its roots really came from um, empiricism, which is uh, kind of 17th, 18th century um, experimental science. This is your scientific method, basically. Um, and we have always viewed the randomized control trial as the top tier and the meta-analysis as sort of a, a, a group grouping of multiple randomized control trials, and we have to look at this evidence with, with such value and that it makes up uh, one-third of this, um, this reasoning model, uh, according to Sackett, defining this as uh, best available research, uh, the patient's values, cultural beliefs, and background, and then there was uh, clinical expertise. And I think where there needs to be a shift or redefining uh, measure should take place within that uh, clinical expertise. And what does that mean? Because I, I went to Sackett's original work, and he spoke of the value of the of clinical expertise, but it is still. Loosely defined and at best multidimensional, uh, and gives no focus on how to develop this, and uh, and and to what level of proficiency uh, to be uh, effective to achieve outcomes in physical therapy. I mean, this is a medical doctor we're talking about and referencing here, and so I, I think that with with the physical therapist perspective we are therapists. We, we still deal with that psychosocial aspect of a human being. Though we view the research and evidence as important, um, I think that one aspect to consider is that clinical expertise really looks at developing a clinician as a translator between best research the patient's values, and providing the best possible treatment plan to meet that specific and unique individual's needs. Because guess what? We're gonna get paid based upon that outcome. And so I think there really does need to be a, a, a redefinition. I know for us internally as a program, we have our own educational philosophy and so forth, um, but I, I do feel that the PT profession specifically should consider what is clinical expertise, how do you develop it quicker, and what is considered proficiency to be deemed meaningful for patient outcomes because we're going to get paid based on that.
0: And you you sort of briefly kind of touched upon... Uh the educational philosophy that you guys have, so so what what have you developed as an educational philosophy to meet the needs of this changing sim, uh, system? And also t- the APTA's new vision statement, which I'll mention briefly because we didn't say what it was before, so just in case people don't know, uh, transforming society by optimizing movement to improve the human condition. So Dr. Duvall, why don't you take this one? So What is that philosophy and how does it meet the needs of everything that we've talked about in this uh, interview?
2: Well, at NextGen, we believe clinical mastery is relevant, particularly with this baby-booming consumer and then, of course, with this evolving emergence of evidence, 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 and then the changing model of payment. So as we look at this, there are really two components of developing clinical mastery. The first consists of scientific knowledge base. This is fundamentally what we've always called via the inquiry process, the evidence or the basic sciences, which includes factors proven by these trials and controlled studies. However, it's the second, all important, empirical or intuitive, the qualitative approach derived from skillfully mentored and introspective clinical experiences. So now, mentorship has got to be by this practitioner who is equally equipped with the ability to uh, be an introspective practitioner themselves. And so, our educational philosophy: we believe that there, this really development of mastery occurs here. It's the empirical, the intuitive, where clinical mastery is optimally cultivated using both cognitive and metacognitive educational strategies. We're fortifying them with introspective tools and this astute mentorship that culminates in the ability to create this masterful, mindful clinician.
0: Great. And, um, you know... Unfortunately, we're we're getting low on time here, and I feel like we're going to have to do a part two um, because we didn't even touch upon the residency versus fellowship. I mean, I feel like that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like that and we could literally be here for another hour just talking about that. So we may have to do sort of we'll say maybe this is part one, and we'll have to do part two in the series. Um, because otherwise this is like a three hour podcast and people are going to not be too jazzed about that. Or maybe they will, they can just listen to it in chunks. But, um, um, that being said, uh, we are, we are short on time. So what I want from you guys is number one, where can people find more information about what you're doing and, and, or get in touch with you if they have questions. And number two, um, Give me some, your sort of final thoughts. What do you want people to, to leave this conversation with? Uh, Dr. Duval? go to you first.
2: Well, the best way to reach us is through our company, which is nextgenpt.com, and that's N X T G E N P T.com. Have a look. I think you'll see tremendous amounts of innovation uh, related all to advancing the clinical practice toward mastery particularly take a look at the introspective processes, the actual tools we have in place that do foster real activities. You know, this is in light of evidence that has recently emerged that suggests residency training doesn't really result in practitioners making measurable change in function. And I would argue that's probably a result of this problem with our definition of uh, the components of only teaching evidence versus uh, developing the complete practitioner intuitively and having all these tools and educational psychological strategies in place that develop this complete practitioner. So I encourage the uh, consumer of post-professional education that now it's more relevant than ever that you do think about continuing it in a different light that you consider it as a professional development portfolio, and one that perhaps uh, will include lifelong learning that goes way beyond CEUs and the achievement, but results in a tangible board certification, and carefully look at programs that do include the development of these qualitative uh, properties within the practitioner.
0: Great. And, uh Francois, Dr. Przysinski, sorry, I keep mm-hmm. calling you by. I keep going back and forth. Go ahead.
1: That's 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 fine. Um, I my only closing statements would be to um, you know have a, have a different perspective. Just change the way that you you view yourself and the way that you practice as a physical therapist. Um, I I really want to um, leave people with the idea that. Uh, there's, there's a human side to all of this that um, we do want to see a, a shift towards a biopsychosocial approach towards education and the execution of, of PT practice. Um, we, we really uh, have gone through a lot of uh, material to, to challenge what it means to educate a postgraduate students and, and really the, the philosophy behind that. Um, I think the discussion should continue in, in a meaningful direction uh, and not just to, to discuss things, just to discuss things. So um, how does it impact us now and how can we have real changes that impact outcomes? Because we desperately need these answers. Um, it's beyond us as a company. It's it's really for for all these patients and it's our social uh, and it's our social responsibility um to to uphold that
0: and i i you know i think this was a great discussion and i, I really want to thank both of you guys dr francois prasinski and dr robert duval and we'll definitely do a part two and we'll talk about residency versus fellowship and all that kind of stuff but you know, I just hope that this conversation sparks a greater conversation within the PT community and um, because I think it definitely needs to happen and I think this is perhaps a good way to get people talking and I'm sure someone here will write a blog post about it and put it up on something, maybe on NextGen or Forward Thinking or somewhere, somewhere. So, Um, uh, but I'll let, I'll let all of the listeners know, uh, when and if that is going to happen, but thank you. Thank you both of you for taking the time out and coming on great discussion, lots to think about. Um, hopefully everyone at home enjoyed it. Everybody have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.